0: great fellowship, and a great time with, come visit us at Open Door Baptist Church and we'll get you connected with the Diamond Ministry. If you're looking for something to do Sunday nights at 6 p.m., we'd love to have you join us. What we have going on first is a study, a look into the minor prophets. You see, many people know who Ezekiel, they know Jeremiah, they know Isaiah, but there are less people that know Obadiah. They don't know who maybe Zechariah, let alone Zephaniah, who they are. And so Dr. Brock Miller, what he does is he goes ahead and shows us who these minor prophets are, why they're called minor prophets, what it meant for the original audience back then, and what relevance does God's message through them have for us today, 2,000 years later. And so join Dr. Miller and his class on the minor prophets here Sunday nights at 6 p.m. in one of our growth groups. If you're looking for something to do Sunday nights at 6 p.m., we'd love to have you join us for our growth groups. Like I said, right down there, 6 o'clock p.m. on Sunday nights. Basically, what we do is we try to have great fellowship as well as digging into scripture. If The Bible is God's special revelation to mankind. You and I would do well to understand what God is trying to get across for us. And so we do this through two types of adult growth groups. We have two classes that are available, one hosted by Dr. Brock Miller, who's going through the Minor Prophets currently, and one hosted by myself as we're going through the book of James, and we're looking at an active faith. So thank you, Gabe. And... uh of course, you know,
1: we just have a lot of children in the church and everybody, a lot of baby dedications on Sunday. I told all the people, let all the other churches change their day and we'll do it on Sunday. But somehow, you know, but the Bible says the last will be first, right? So I am, by the way, I am planning uh, on on doing that uh, on Father's Day. Not, I know it's the second rate holiday compared to Mother's Day. Agreed. But, uh, you know, so if if that's something you'd be interested in and having one or more of your children dedicated publicly unto the Lord, of course, there is no um, biblical command that that has to be done. There's some biblical principle to it. I always crack up when people use, uh, you know, Luke's account where Jesus was dedicated, you know. that, that, that That's true, and I do think if you want to, you know, I, I'm not. it doesn't offend me, but, you know, that was a very Jewish law thing that was required of him. And of them, um, we're not under law. But that being said, I think it's a great thing to do. And they say, when do you do it? I do it whenever anybody asks me to. So we had somebody ask me to do it. So I said, hey, we got several folks. Maybe they'd like to do that. And it's just a public um, statement that your as parents desire is God's blessing on the child. And also that God would help you in the responsibility of bringing that child up and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, because it ain't easy. And all the old people in here who have kids say, hey, Amen. <laughs> uh, although, Will, you, you you got it. I mean, his grew up, and we saw pictures of Brother uh, Will's son went through, uh, already went through basic training as a Marine and then went through a special school, trained and graduated, and top 1%. So, He's not like you, Um, you know. Aren't you, are you Air Force back? What are you retired? Army. Okay, you're Army. So he, he, uh, we have all branches of service here at our ministry. And, uh, but there is, there can be no discussion, you know. I, I don't have really have a, I don't have a dog in this fight, but come on. The Marines have the best dressed look uniform. Man, they have awesome uniforms. And the Marines are tough guys. They just are. You can call them all the names you want to call them, but who goes in first and who leaves last? It's always the Marines. So far, it seems like the Marines, you know, all the other branches are making sure that, you know, kindergarten children can pass their entrance evaluations, you know. Um, It's scary, you know. Um, When you're fighting someone to the death, they don't care about your social justice position. Um, see, I'm, I didn't even start. I'm just getting off. All right. All right. Glad you all joined us. You're watching online tonight. I'm going to get back into Life of Messiah. Uh, you all distracted me long enough. And we are in um, the study of where Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. We've been in the Gospel of John every single week because this, whenever John's in part of the Life of the Messiah storyline, you know, the other three Gospels are the synoptic ones. They share similar information. But John is a very unique Gospel. It's different. And a lot of times it shares Uh, information that we only get in John, and for a long time I used to wonder why that was, and it took me a little while until I realized that the Gospel of John is a very unique book. Now every book in the Bible is inspired, they're all important, but it's unique in the sense that um, it'd be the only book of the Bible out of all 66 that I think you could make a very strong argument that its primary number one purpose is evangelism to those that do not believe. And, and so it is very unique in that way. And usually when you find folks who are giving out one book of the Bible, like as a, as a track or whatever, you know, every now and then I might see them give out Romans, which, you know, I don't personally don't think is in the hands of an unbeliever. That'd be my first choice. It, you know, but usually it's the, the gospel of John. Why? Because it's the book that tells us it's very evangelistic. How can I know I get to heaven and it's through the personage of Jesus Christ? Well, um, with that in mind, in the Gospel of John, we've been spending, by design, far more than Dr. Frutenbaum does. No, no offense to him. He you know, has to get through it quicker. But I would say John chapter 3 and John chapter 4 are maybe the two most consequential chapters in evangelism and in the doctrine of soteriology. Um, which is, comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to save. So how does a person get saved? And these are two very, very important chapters. And we look first in John 3 at Nicodemus, who is a Jewish moral man who is still unsaved. And then we get to chapter 4, and Jesus is now witnessing to a Samaritan woman, Who has uh, had some morality issues more than likely and been married five different times? Jesus has already showed her, and we've already studied how he knew all of her past, her five husbands, and we talked last week about not being too quick to judge her. And then remember her response. We left off last week with her response in John chapter number four, uh, where the woman said in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now remember, last week we ended with Charles Spurgeon's quote that he said this he said, It had been better if she had perceived that she was a sinner. She still is thinking physical water as Jesus has been offering her living water, but she's slowly beginning to come around. Now, most commentaries, if you read them, when she gives this answer, Sir, I perceive thou our prophet, most commentaries will say something to the effect that um, she now wants to change the topic. You know, he's called her out that she's had five husbands and now she's living with a guy and she wants to tar- start talking about religion. And I don't know how it's been for you, but if you had the experience where you talk to people about things of faith, a lot of times they're happy to talk about anything else, <laughs> you know, about anything else. But wait. And especially when in, in in my personal stance on when you present the gospel, at some point, as we saw last week, you have to be confrontational in the sense of getting a person to recognize they are a sinner in need of a savior that in and of themselves they don't deserve heaven by their own good works and that can be a little you know some people ever anybody get offended at that i've had people tell me well i'm a good person and then of course i go i use the way of the master approach that's i still like it you know where you know using the 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 ten commandments using the law as a schoolmaster to bring someone to Christ, say, "Hey, have you ever told a lie?" You know, and, and unless they're really dishonest, they'll say, "Yeah." And I say, "Well, what do you tell? What do you call a person who tells lies?" And and just waiting for them in their mind to have to say a liar, <laughs> it kills them. You know, they say, "Have you ever stolen anything?" You know, and you're looking at them like we all know you have. And then they'll say, "Yeah." And I say, well, "What do you call someone who steals things? <laughs> a thief." <laughs> so you're a thief and a liar. You have a strange definition of a good person, but last week we saw that Jesus does that. He has this, he brings it to a point where she recognizes that he knows that she's made some poor life choices along the way. So we're going to pick things up tonight in verse number 20 of John chapter 4, where uh, the woman goes on, she says, I perceive our prophet, in verse 20, our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So now she starts a very common debate that was held between the Jews and the Samaritans. Remember, I've shared with you that the Samaritans, they did hold to the authority of the first five books of the Old Testament. Now, they had a little bit of a problem because they wanted to come worship at Jerusalem and the Jewish people would not allow them any, a Samaritan anywhere near the temple. And so over the years, the Samaritans made their own temple on Mount Gerizim. Now, remember... Jesus is at a place called Jacob's Well in between two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And these are two mountains that have great history and they're the mountains where Moses, when he read off the great, uh, the commandments, he put Mount Ebal's b- curses and Mount Gerizim as the blessing. Basically, if, if you do what God wants, you get this blessing. If you're disobedient to God, this is what happens to you. So Mount Gerizim was known as the Mount of Blessing. And so, you know, which one of the mountains would you build a temple on? You know, I, don't know about you. I you know I think I like blessings better. So that's what they did. And then remember, I shared with you that what they did is they didn't want to see Jerusalem mentioned at all. So anytime in the, in these five books that Jerusalem was mentioned, they replaced it with Mount Gerizim. Now, it, I, I'm going to, here's where the Jewish perspective comes in. And I, I really appreciate Dr. Frutenbaum. These are things I, I, no one had ever told me. I didn't know this um, going through school, master's degree, no, no one ever told me this till I had a Jewish friend that understood scripture from a Jewish perspective. Um, I do believe the woman was trying to change the topic, you know, that Jesus had said, you're a sinner, now she wants to talk about religion, but I don't think that's the only reason. Now, as I've just said, the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the, of the Old Testament that we call the law, the books of the law, Right? And in the Jewish perspective, and even in some of the the Samaritans viewed it similarly, um, the Old Testament books were broken into three different groups. If you look at a Hebrew Bible, you'll find it this way. There's the law, and what's the other two? Does anybody know what the other two groupings of the rest of our Old Testament is called? The prophets and you're you're in you're in the right section, the law, the prophets, and the writings. As a matter of fact, you'll find Jesus refers to it that way a couple times in the New Testament, and uh, that was just a quick way the the Jewish people. And now, while they believed all of them were part of the Scripture, even the Jewish people had a little bit of a ranking, and the top dog was the law. You know, the the first five books, but the Samaritans didn't hold to those. Now, when you recognize that. It really changes when you bring a Jewish or a Samaritan perspective to this. When the woman says to Jesus, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now, he's just told her about her whole life story, and she's figured out this is not just some guy. And you might say, Well, she's just saying he's some kind of prophet. Now, if you look through the lens of a Samaritan theology, they how she'd been taught. If you only have the first five books of the Bible what would you come away with in terms of a prophet? You wouldn't be thinking about Isaiah or Jeremiah. You'll think about the one that's mentioned in Deuteronomy, the prophet, the one that Moses mentions. That after me, one day there's going to come the prophet, and the Jewish theologians and probably the Samaritans one, they viewed that person would be the prophet, the Messiah. So, when you recognize that perspective Dr. Frutenbaum brings out he says when she asked the question sir I perceive that thou art a prophet she's kind of dancing around the edges like are you saying you're that prophet? Now she didn't want to go there all the way and I think she legitimately now brings some idea that she had some theology issues going okay if, if that's who you are, I still don't understand this whole where we got to worship thing. You know, um, this mountain or that. It's a It was it was a big issue to her. So that's why in verse 21, Jesus begins to answer a question. He says, and Jesus saith her, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, when she says that, when he says this to her, I, again, in my mind, this must have blown her away when he goes. It's the days coming where Mount Gerizim or Jerusalem is not where it's going to be. That the argument that the Samaritans and the Jews have been involved in for hundreds of years is about to become Irrelevant. You ever find that there are times that sometimes we get into arguments that ultimately can be will be quite irrelevant? You know, be careful when yeah. You know, I know when it becomes important to me, that makes it important enough to argue about, right? <laughs> I don't know who you are, but it, but sometimes it's like man, sometimes in Christianity. Uh, you know, I worked for a while in a ministry that was multi-denominational and um, in its contact, and I was like, it it was it, it was really good for me. Um, I, I, I hold some real deep theological differences, for example, between the Assemblies of God denomination and we Baptists or independent Baptists in particular. Um, but I will tell you, I've spent a lot of time working with some, some of those guys and I came to have some great friendships and appreciation for some of those guys. Still disagree with them, We used to go around and around once I became good friends with them, but um, sometimes we get in arguments, though, and Jesus tells her this big argument y'all been having for a long time. It's about to become irrelevant. Now, I'm thankful that Jesus is an apologist. Now, Pastor Danny's working in children's ministry tonight. He's very versatile that, Pastor Danny, Um, but he's working in uh, children's ministry tonight, but He'd, get a, he'd, he'd give me an amen here that we see Jesus is, is an apologist. In other words, he, is, he does defend the scripture. He does know how to answer. And he does have an answer for the debates of the day. Because in verse number 22, he goes on and look what he says. Ye worship, ye know not what? We know what we worship for salvations of the Jews. He looks at it and says, you guys don't know what you worship. Now, I ask my, asked myself the question, what was it that the Samaritans did not know? Why, why was it they had no idea what they were worshiping? We already discovered that they did, they did hold, and many writers think they, the average Samaritan knew the first five books, of the law, better than your average Jewish person of the day. So they had some things understood correctly. But Jesus says, y'all don't know what you're talking about. If I can put it in Southern, you know, like one of you. Y'all don't know any idea what you're talking about. I'm sure that's how he said in Southern. But why, why do you think they didn't know what they were talking about? Why would Jesus make this statement? It's a pretty, pretty direct statement, isn't it? Anybody any thoughts on that? No, I was, this is a harder question. I'm not, this is not one of my I've got you questions. I, I like to give those to you every now and then. Um, but no. Um, I mean, he's clearly telling her that the Samaritan's theology is wrong. I, I would say they, when you get to the place that you're taking part of Scripture that you know says one thing and you cross it out and put what you want in there is an indicator that you don't know what you're doing. That's why by the way I think textual criticism is an important thing in our day. I do think it's, you know, I, sometimes it gets overblown. I want to get sidetracked in that but it's an, it's an issue. I mean, from the very beginning Satan always attacks the word of God and they, they, were, they, had, met, they had changed words and they'd made some of their own thing, and, you know, I thought to myself, sounds familiar. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses, what do they do? They have to make their own translation. Uh, especially because of john chapter one they they changed some some of the Greek words around so they can say that you know Jesus was just a God, not the God. you know I think of the Mormons you know they got to bring in the, the Book of Mormon and all the, you know, the, the 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 what is it the book of uh blessings and curses or what they 've got two or three of their holy books you know uh the Catholic Church has to bring in alongside the authority of the bible that 's not the ultimate authority, the papal authority and the authority of the church, you know all these different things when 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 you 're messing with what God says you're going to find yourself in a place where you don't know what you're talking about. And we know that under Mosaic law, it's pretty clear that wherever the tabernacle and then later the temple was located, that was the place of worship. First it was located at Shiloh and then at Jerusalem. And then Jesus makes a strong statement and says, salvation is of the Jews. It it, it always amazes me, I don't have a good answer for this, but it always amazes me how some Christian denominations, and when you look out, by the way, throughout quote unquote Christian history we have a very bad history in relationship to how we treat Jewish people. Which by the way is based on bad theology that came in and said this and, and by the way it's rampant in the United States. I won't name any names. Maybe I will sometime. I don't know. I'll let Pastor Danny, he's the apologist. So I'll let him do that. But we got people today that still think that Israel was replaced by the church. And if Israel is replaced by the church, what do you need Israel for? It, that leads you down some bad roads, and I'm afraid that some of our history, and even when you get into, you know, I, I was unaware of some things till a friend of mine and even some things of Dr. Frutenbaum and some of his own other writings of what the church did to the Jewish people in Poland and other parts of Europe in and before and during World War II. Why Jewish people don't want to see a cross And yet, we read the Bible and it says salvation is of the Jews. How can you be anti-Semitic and believe that verse? Really tough to do that. And yet, unfortunately, it's possibly done. But the only reason any of us are going to heaven is because of a Jewish carpenter who's the son of God and the savior of the world. And so, Jesus corrects her theology. He answers her question. So I don't think she was, maybe she wanted to deflect, but I think really more he saw that she was figuring out, are you that prophet? Okay, I still have this issue, and he gives her, I'm not going to sugarcoat it to you, woman. That's what he calls her, so I'll call her woman. (laughs) Here's the truth, you all don't know what you're talking about. The Jews do, and salvation is of the Jews. But verse 23 and 24, he goes, he's going to transition back to her issues, the personal. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Oh, I, I love these verses. The hour cometh, and now is. When Jesus showed up on the scene, we know that the era of Mosaic law, the clock, the sands, and the hourglass were getting down to very few. As Dr. Frutenbaum calls it, this time in the life of Messiah is a transitional period from the law to grace. By the way, that's why at our church, theologically, if I'm going to get a big word here again, we are what's known as dispensationalists. We believe you ought to rightly divide the word of truth. I do oppose those who, what I would call, they micromanage every little thing and they say this book of the Bible's for this and that they, they... But... There are different eras, and we believe that the era of the law was finished when Jesus died on the cross. As Colossians says, he nailed the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, the law. He nailed it against the cross, paid in full. So thankful for that, and now we live in grace. Amen and amen. And Jesus says to this lady, um, the time's coming where the true worship of God is not going to be based on location, It's not going to be based on external rituals at the temple, whether it's at Mount Gerizim or in Jerusalem, that that God's going to have a connection in maybe a different or a deeper way, a spiritual connection. Now, that being said, one of the things that I wrestle with is when you get in the Old Testament, the law, was there a spiritual connection between an individual and God under law? Yeah, see I see some of my people shaking their head thinking, I, you know, I, I thought about this this week because I don't have an easy answer totally for that but I have to say yes. I, I, do you think that God ever didn't want the individual to have a individual faith in him as the provider of a covering, removal of sin and an eternal destiny? I believe everybody from Adam on had the same root Essential nature and qualifier being faith. And yet under law, it was very tempting and very easy for people to leave the spiritual connection and only focus on the external connection. And as long as I show up at the temple when I'm supposed to and I bring my turtle doves or whatever I do, I'm good. After all, I'm Jewish. Remember, we have talked about that theology of the day. They believed all Jews were getting into heaven and Jesus poured water on that wrong theology as well but I would say today the power of works and self-righteousness is still very strong in us and even though we live in the era of grace it is very easy for us to begin to develop and our opinion on what is spiritual or what makes someone spiritual primarily based on what we do. Our externals, well, I go to church three times a week. Well, la-dee-da-dee-da for you. As a pastor, I'm very thankful you go to church three times a week. I appreciate that. Um, But it ought to be because you're spiritually hungry to be fed and not as some, look at me, and, and so I find that, uh, that, I think there was a spiritual connection, but Jesus said this is about to change in, in its flavor and what's going to happen. And, uh, but God desires this spiritual oneness that I would think is a great definition for what we call worship, because that's what Jesus says here. He desires true worshipers, shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says, and God is spirit. I don't know about you, but I have a hard time getting my head around, you know, who God is in totality. I, I don't. No, I don't. You know, I know very clearly God is spirit, and I know God, the Holy Spirit. Um, and Jesus says that if you're going to worship Him, you've got to worship Him in spirit and in truth. The two qualifiers. What does it mean to worship God in spirit? Anybody got a thought on that? Again, this is not one of my trick questions, because I really thought of this week, uh, I meditated on this a little bit, you know, what does it mean to worship God in spirit? Now I know we have our, my charismatic friends I mentioned a few minutes ago, that means you speak in some unknown language, and you run around and do things, and, you know, I, 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 while I do believe the gift of tongues does still exist, that's another topic for another one, not in the way that most charismatic ministries unveil it. But nonetheless, um, what do you think it means that we ought to worship God in spirit? Anybody? Again, I'm not, it's, I'm not, I'm not channeling, yeah. All right, the, the core of my being. Um, maybe, Brock, if I expand on that, you know, most, of, you know, most people think, Oh, well, there's debate. Some think we're made up of a body, soul, and spirit. Some think it's body and soul and spirit are one element, whatever. But that soul and spirit side of it must be engaged in, in, in this connection with God. I mean, because when, when, when you talk about what is it to worship something, yeah, I think we can quantify it. You've heard me say it, and I'll say it again. You know, you show me where your time, your talent, and your money goes, and I'll show you what you worship. That, that I, I, you know, it's a very practical way of doing it, but yet still I think words would fail. I guess what I would say is I think many Christians who are genuinely believers never enter into a lot of personal worship of God. And that doesn't mean, while we call our Sunday morning service our worship service, and that's a correct definition of it, but as a believer, are we supposed to worship God like one hour a week? Is that the only time we're worshiping God? No, there there ought to be these times where you and God have this connection. And at the risk, again, of sounding too, you know, touchy-feely, you know, if you have a, a oneness connection with the creator of the universe there's something to that and um jesus says you, if you're going to worship god it's got to be in spirit but then he also qualifies it with truth and i think if i ask you what is truth even the debate the discussion that jesus is having here comes back to you know they they all agreed on the first five books of the bible i would say you know, truth is based on the revealed word of God. If you're going to have worship with God, we live in a day where everybody says, well, I want to worship in my own way. If you read the Old Testament, people who told God how they were going to worship, it didn't go good for them. When they brought strange fire or touched the ark when it was on a cart, you know, we can talk about that. Was it Uzzah? Was that his name? And touched it and God struck him dead. Thought he was doing God a favor. Mm, Be careful and just, you know, we live in an era today where it's like, oh, I'm... I think I just have the item of worship. I, I've been having this discussion with somebody here recently, and, oh, we just need to get in touch with God our own way. No, you can, you can try that, but uh, God, God, God gave a very clear way how you can know what the truth is. And the older I get, the more convinced I am as I look around this world, and I have had the opportunity to read the great thinkers of history past, and some of them are brilliant thinkers, you know, whatever, but there is only one book that's been vetted and tried and preserved that I'm going to base my truth upon, and everybody has something you're trusting. All I know is for me, it's going to be this. Oops, not not my penguin. It's going to be the Word of God. That's all I'm going to trust. That was that was the spirit moving there. Did you hear that? Sometimes when I preach, the thunder strikes, you know, and the lightning strikes, and the thunder sounds off. Maybe that'll happen tonight. Um, at this point, I'm happy that. The we worship God in spirit and truth and as Dr. Furtinbaum points out an interesting question right now location of worship doesn't matter right? is it always going to be that way? nope if you read during the millennial kingdom Zechariah chapter 4 verses 16 to 21 talks about the Gentiles coming to Jerusalem to worship so the day's coming after this era is over during the millennial kingdom, the temple's going to be set up, and apparently location's going to be a thing again. So, you know, I don't want to say that the grace is necessarily and disp- superior to the law in some way. It isn't, you know, it isn't, I'm so thankful for grace over law, but this location thing could be an issue again. I was thinking me and Pastor Danny, neither one of us like to fly. I don't know how that's going to work. It's going to be in the millennial kingdom. I'll have a glorified body. You know, we all don't know what that totally entails. You know, I don't know if I'm going to have the ability to, you know, if we will have the ability to just think where I want to be and whatever, and I can just zip right over there. I'm please, Lord, I would love that capability. Um, Or if if we're more, I don't know what it's going to be, but that looks like location's going to be a thing again. So uh, just food for thought there. Well, look at what happens in verse 25. Uh, Jesus, uh, or the woman, responds to this. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Now, in light of what I've shared you tonight, do you see how her response makes a lot more sense now? This whole time when she's talking about the prophet, Jesus knew what she was thinking about, and she was. This was on her mind, and now he's made this thing about, forget about this theological thing that's keeping you from true worship. It's not going to matter here in a little bit of time. And now she went from talking from a veiled sense of the prophet to now just saying it. And the Samaritans believe Messiah would be all-powerful. She talks about him being omniscient, and he's you know, he's already demonstrated that turn. She's asking him, "Is it all possible that you are this Messiah?" She's now thinking not about the water anymore, physically. I think now the woman is trans- transitioned over she's thinking much, much bigger than she had earlier, Which is why when you get to verse 26, where we'll stop tonight, Jesus saith unto her, "I that speak unto thee am he." Whoa. That's why I entitled tonight's Bible study, The Content of Saving Faith. And I, I, I just think it, Jesus just puts it right here as the Holy Spirit puts on John to record for us. Um, wow. You see, Samaritan theology had many correct things about the person of Messiah. You know, the belief in him. Um, for example, the sin bearer. It, notice in the verse before when she said, I know that when Messiah cometh, and she qualifies that, which is called Christ, Christos. If you know anything about the lineage of that word, it comes from the Old Testament, the anointed. Has reference over to the Passover lamb, the one that was picked out, that was anointed to be the one that would shed its blood for the covering of sin. That the Christ would be the Christos. I think she had an understanding of that, that picture, that Messiah was going to be this Christ are, are you him? And I believe that the Redeemer, the person of Jesus Christ, is the central content. Believe in Jesus Christ for everlasting life. John says it over and over and over again throughout his gospel as the central content of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if you want to make this even more dynamic, um, in verse 26, the scripture, the short little verse is so powerful. If you have your King James, it says, Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And and you'll notice in the end the he is in italics. That's because it was provided by the translators because it need not be there in the idea. It's fine. But if you've been privileged to learn some of the original language, the original Greek writing construction of this verse is is very powerful. It it would literally read, Jesus saith unto her I am is speaking to you. It's ego me in the Greek with an emphatic. She knew the Old Testament, the first five books. She knew Exodus when God showed up and Moses said, who should I say? And God says, I am. And when she asked this question, Jesus says, I am is speaking to you. Yee. that's powerful, isn't it? She understood, and when and you want what's the core saving of the gospel message? I'm always going to lean on the Word of God, um, John chapter twenty, verse number thirty-one. One of my favorite verses of Scripture in the end of the book, Gospel of John. John says, "Why he put this book together? These things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is what the Christ, the sin bearer, the Son of God, the I Am." And that by believing, you might have life through his name. Boom. Drop the mic moment. To be saved, a person needs to recognize they are a sinner. They need to recognize that Jesus Christ is not just some born person, the brother of Adam or whatever kind of heresy is out there. He is God from everlasting to everlasting. And we must personally apply faith by receiving that gift. That's the core content of saving faith. And Jesus hits her with this. And in my personal belief, this is where the woman, the light fully came on. And she believes. That's my, that's, I'll tell you, that's my opinion. The scripture doesn't record it. Just like in Nicodemus, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly when he became a believer. We believe he did. I believe her. She does right here. And he, Jesus tells her, I'm the Messiah. Now it was interesting because if we go through the life of Messiah, you're going to find that Jesus doesn't use this approach with the Jewish people. You very seldom early in his ministry, he doesn't go out there and say, they, remember the Pharisees, would, tell us plainly whether you're him or not. Now he was in his actions, which is I think he was requiring them to be accountable for that which they already knew. But with the Samaritan woman, he just goes, yep. You perceive that prophet? I'm him. Bottom line is, according to 1 Timothy 1.15, Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And um, that's the message, the good news. I remember several years ago, and I like telling the story. It's one of my favorites. Several years ago, um, we had, uh, and I haven't seen them around for a while. They used to tie their bikes up by our telephone pole out front out here. Um, I used to go out there and take all the air out of their tires. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. I, I did think about it, but I didn't do that. But And you know, we'd always try to reach to them and not be afraid to discuss them. Well, these Mormons, these elders, you know, they're like 12 years old and they're elders. Um, They started coming to church. They showed, remember that Michael Bryant? You were here, I think, for some of that. Brock, you were here for some of that. Um, DT, you remember the Mormons being here? Uh, Tommy does. And, um, they started coming. They showed up one night and just walked in and you know, we're all looking around. Remember that, Michelle? We're all looking around like, what do we do with these? It was before we had the security team to throw them out. No, just kidding. Just kidding again. YouTube, I'm just kidding. Um, and we decided, you know what? And we were doing something. That, I don't know what it was. It was a Sunday night sizzle night or something. And, but I told Matt, I remember telling Matt, you know, I had this Bible study worked out for our church, but that's going by the wayside, you know. And I just ripped the gospel for like, twenty minutes. I just preached, you know, about Jesus saved and some of the things we talked to tonight. And then we had a Bible sword drill. Remember that, Tommy? And uh they thought they had brought their Bible they brought their King James Bibles. Even the Mormons know which one has the most respect. But at any rate, they brought the King James Bible and we had this Bible sword drill, and I'm thinking to myself, Boy, if they win, I am gonna be so embarrassed. I never cheered for our people hard enough. Then I looked over and on the second row back there, sitting over there was Holly. Holly Lane was here. And actually it was I'm going, nobody beats Holly. (laughs) If you've ever done a Bible sword drill, if we do them ever again, I don't even know if I can let her play. It's not fair. Um, But we did the first, I called out the first reference, and they were trying really hard. But there must have been 10 people stood up before they were even, I don't even know, think they were close. After about the third one, of course, Holly, I think she won two of the first three, they gave up. They weren't even trying anymore, and I think it was quite a witness that they didn't know the Bible the way they thought they did, and they had this idea. And their their people tell them right, that most Christians have no idea what their Bible actually says. But they came to the wrong church. <laughs> well, any anyway, rate, they came a couple times, and I don't forget they came one time, and they'd come a couple times, and and it was obvious to me that they weren't they weren't seeking. And somebody came and told me, oh, there's, there's four of them now. was two, and now there's four of them, and they're sitting out in the car out in the parking lot. And I'm like, oh, okay. Sometimes as a shepherd, that's my job, and the shepherd makes it. And the shepherd decided, I'm not exposing my flock to any more danger. Done it enough, showed grace, but now there's going to be a little bit of law. Um, so I went out and knocked on the window, and they rolled in the window, and I got down, Pilot and I talked to them. I said, hey, guys. And we started talking to them, and I said, listen, here's the deal you know, and I used use this very verse in John 4. I said, Jesus said, if you're going to come worship him, you've got to worship him in spirit and in truth. And as lovingly as I can tell you, you are not in truth. Now, if you're really seeking truth, which is what they kept telling me, oh, we just want to, you know. I said, if you're really seeking truth, then meet me here tomorrow morning at whatever time, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, all four of you, because they brought, they brought a higher up with them this time. You know, I think they got embarrassed after they got creamed in the Bible thing. I don't know. They brought it, an, uh, an elder who was probably in his mid to late 20s, somebody a little older. I said, all four of you, just me, and since we all agree on the Bible, the King James Bible, since we bring, you bring your King James Bible, the four of you against, not against, with just one of me, And we'll sit down and discuss what is truth as found in this. I could not. I think I could have said, we'll make pancakes and everything for you. I couldn't get them to take that up on me at all. And I said, but until that time, I'm sorry, I can't permit you to join in our worship services. And I guess... One of them ended up, funny, one of them ended up worked with Holly, I think, at Chick-fil-A at the time. Um, (laughs) And Holly goes, yeah, it's all around town that one church kicked them out, you know. (laughs) Yeah! I like that. I like the way we talk, guys. But, you know, I'm sure they weren't telling the whole truth, but they weren't really seeking for truth. Aren't you glad to know, and I hope you do know, Jesus Christ is your personal Savior. Because when Jesus talks to you, it's the great I am. Well, thanks for being here tonight. I'm going to close in prayer. I got done 10 minutes early tonight. Isn't that fantastic? Y'all love that. I got done early. I, I, I'm going to uh, certainly, these last several weeks have been on Wednesdays have been tough for me physically. They, all, they usually are. And I know one of the reasons for that is these last several weeks have been some of the most theologically significant Bible studies I feel like I've ever delivered. And I know, unfortunately, that what I've shared the last couple of weeks is not even mainline evangelicalism anymore. And um, salvation is either a free gift or it is not. There is no middle ground. And I'm sorry that most of the people here on Christian radio today and some of the big Christian ministries. Have abandoned this simple free message of grace, but Jesus said, I'm gonna offer you living water. It's a free gift. Amen? Amen. All right, I'm gonna pray. We're gonna be dismissed. I don't do we have any announcements for this weekend, Jen? Or Pastor Danny's not in here, so I rely on my other assistant. Graduation Sunday. We got some special things happening Sunday. And the Iwana Awards night is Sunday night. And um is the diamond dinner Friday? Is that this Friday? Thank you, Jim. The diamond dinner is this Friday. So, um, all you diamonds, you know, make, that's always a, a nice free dinner. Fantastic, right, Brock? Is that Brock? Is that right? He's. Are you de- are you debating that or is that right? He has no idea. Right. On that case, Jim, if, if if you're wrong on the date, Jim is going to be here and make dinner for everybody Friday, six o'clock. So, so you know, I. Yeah, pizza. Yeah, 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 that's right. Well, we have got to call in some pizza. There you go. All right, let me pray. We'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for the teaching of a word tonight. Thank you for the testimony of this Samaritan woman, and uh, th- so much that we can learn from how we can approach p- people in spirit and in truth. Uh, Lord, I'm so thankful that uh, your gift of eternal life is a simple, free gift, and that you you did it all, and you offer us through simple faith that you are who you claim to be, that you died for our sin, and you rose again. Thank you so much for eternal life. Help us as we go our separate ways. God, I know there are folks here tonight that are battling different issues. I know, um, Lord, there's unspoken requests that were not mentioned tonight. Uh, Lord, there are battles raging even in our church family that uh, my heart is just broken right now. Um, God, we need to see and we beg your power in lives that you would bring conviction where it is necessary, repentance where it is necessary. God, help us to recognize that the days are growing short. The time is growing short. And help us to be about your business. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for being here tonight.
0: God bless you.